Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Boston Athenaeum. Uh, in a moment, it will give me pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening. <laughs> and it will get, give me somewhat diminished pleasure to actually be that speaker. So. <laughs> so we're on our own, people. Uh, just a reminder to turn off your cell phones or any other sound-emitting devices and to note the nearest exit in case of an emergency, uh, which would be this one in the front of the room, uh, out through the newspaper room, or if you're towards the rear of the room, you would go out the doors through which you entered and bear to the left, not to the right, but to the left, and follow the signs. I am David Derringer, the um, Susan Morris Hill is Senior Curator uh, of Paintings and Sculpture here at the Boston Athenaeum, and I. Uh, thank you for coming to this lecture this evening, An American Sculptor in the Female Form, which is being given in conjunction with the current exhibition on Daniel Chester French and his use of the female form in allegorical uh, ways. I hope that if you have not seen the exhibition yet that you'll uh, see it after the lecture. The gallery is open until the Athenaeum closes at 8 o'clock this evening and the exhibition is on view through February 19th, 2017, so you have plenty of time to come back and savor it. Uh, there's also a catalog uh, of the exhibition for sale at the circulation desk, so I hope you'll pick up a copy of that as well. Uh, before I begin, I would like to thank a few people who have made uh, helped me make all of this possible, uh, especially Donna Hassler, who is director at Chesterwood, which is a site of the National Trust for Historic Preservation uh, just outside Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I'm sure many of you have been there. Uh, Donna uh, and I have known each other for many years uh, and shared a particular interest uh, within American art history in American sculpture. And so this has been the culmination of, of long uh, discussions over many years. And so it's been uh, both personally and professionally gratifying. I also want to acknowledge the support of the National Endowment for the Arts, which uh, gave the Athenaeum a grant uh, which helped us with the conservation of the sculpture and the publication of the catalog. Uh, and I'm quite proud that we got that grant. I'm sure uh, most of you know how difficult it is to get a government grant these days. And I'd like to also acknowledge the photographers, uh, Richard Cheek, Paul Rushalo, and Douglas Yao, uh, doing an exhibition of sculpture, especially public sculpture, is particularly challenging because it, it, was very, it would have been very difficult to actually bring the finished monuments in here into the Athenaeum. Uh, the cities that own them were not particularly cooperative about that. So <laughs> we have to, uh, when we do sculpture exhibitions, we have to rely on the sm smaller models, maquettes, and casts, which make up the current exhibition, uh, which have, of course, their own value, um, both aesthetically and in terms of technique and development of the artist's ideas, and fo good photographs of them. Uh, there aren't many photographers who really understand how to photograph sculpture, especially outdoor sculpture, uh, and so I've been very happy to work with these uh, professional photographers to get that done. <clears throat> For nearly half a century, from the late 1870s to the 1920s, Daniel Chester French was America's foremost sculptor of public monuments. 
Today, his works can be seen in major cities of the East Coast, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, Boston, as well as further west from Detroit, Milwaukee, and Chicago to Council Bluffs and San Francisco. From the her heroic Minuteman ready for action in Concord, Massachusetts, to Abraham Lincoln contemplating the future of a nation in Washington, D.C., in, in Lincoln, Nebraska. From the subtle didacticism of the seated John Harvard on campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts, to the more overtly, uh, the more overtly didacticism and humanitarianism of Thomas Gallaudet actively engaging a student on another campus in Washington, D.C. From the mounted Civil War generals Joseph Hooker just across the street here in Boston and U.S. Grant in Philadelphia in Fairmont Park, each facing battle in his own way, to the great brooding marble Lincoln in the Lincoln Memorial. These are among French's best known sculptures, and if the public is aware of his work at all, it's usually due to one or more of these. They are the products of a long and prolific career, and though they may be scattered geographically, they are bound together by their public status and their commemorative mission. As monuments, they aim by definition to be monumental. And in each case, whether life-size or larger than, standing or seated, walking or riding, in bronze or in marble, they are pointedly serious, sincere, formal, and restrained. By these means, each overtly projects masculinity, at least as it was defined at the time. There can be no doubt, whether of the minute or for the ages, these sculpted beings are, to a man, male. As it turns out, French had no public opportunities to commemorate women, at least not specifically or as individuals. Uh, this was an unfortunate commonality for public sculpture at the time. Uh, memorials to women were rare and would remain so well into the 20th century. Of course, this is not to say that French failed to look to and at women for inspiration. On the contrary, he did so quite often and always, as we will see he produced a number of commemorative works that may not celebrate specific women, but nevertheless succeed because of French's ability to depict the female form. While these sculptures serve the same public commemorative function as French's sculptures of men, they don't rely on portraiture to do so. Instead, they transmit their intentions through idealized physicality, poetic, graceful body language, and visually arresting compositions. Allegory replaces portraiture, universal ideals override specificity, and feminine beauty emerges as the most apparent feature. In fact, I would argue that as, we, as he moved from the male figure with all of the strictures imposed upon it by insistent stereotyped masculinity to the female form, French's imaginative powers and artistic sensitivities were unleashed, or at least stimulated. Here, he was better able to explore the uses of the body for allegorical purpose and experiment with its expressive capabilities. Working with the female form, then, brought out the woman in Daniel Chester French. 
Of course, French was not the only artist working at the time to make these figurative explorations. From the late 1880s into the 1920s, uh, the period in American cultural history that we call the American Renaissance, artistic appropriation of the female figure for allegorical purpose was pretty much taken for granted. Perhaps that's why, despite French's prodigious talents at doing so, this particular aspect of his career has not received much scholarly attention. And it's uh, one of the points of this lecture and the uh, current exhibition uh, to introduce this as a uh, topic of worthy pursuit. Another concern here will be the relationship between French's art and the people who paid for it. Uh, French may not have been commissioned to create monuments to women as individuals, but women, real women, not just allegorized body doubles, did play a significant role as patrons of some of his most successful public sculptures. As with most works of art created on commission, those that French made for these women, all of whom were determined, thoughtful, and aesthetically astute, are products not only of his own talents and tastes, but also of theirs. I will have occasion to mention a few of these extraordinary people later in the talk, but first some background. One thing about French's sculpture that becomes apparent when you study it as a whole is that he was able to take a variety of, of traditional stylistic and figurative formulas and rethink them according to the artistic and practical requirements of a particular job. One of the reasons that he was able to do this was that he came of age during a moment of aesthetic and technical transition. At the time of French's birth in 1850, most American sculptors were still invested in the neoclassical style as embodied in the works of Hiram Powers, whose Greek slave was the most famous sculpture of the day on both sides of the Atlantic, and Thomas Crawford, whose Orpheus and Cerberus, carved in the sculptor's Roman studio, had, not too many years before, made an auspicious American debut, and it made it at the Boston Athenaeum. By the time French entered adulthood in the 1870s, though, taste for these classical reboots and the marble in which they were most often imagined was being supplanted by a new naturalism and a new medium, bronze. French's own training, purposefully planned to do so or not, put him in good stead to move with the times. In fact, we can imagine him almost ticking off the pedagogical steps that, one by one, would give him the skills he needed to become a successful artist in a modern and rapidly changing world. His first engagement in the practice of art came from the painter and sculptor May Alcott, sister of the writer Louisa May Alcott, who was a neighbor of French's family in Concord, Massachusetts, where they had moved in 1867. Three years after that, and amazingly with the support of his family, French went to New York City to study drawing at the School of the National Academy of Design, then headquartered on East 23rd Street and functioning as the center of the New York art world. More important, though, to French's career path was a brief apprenticeship that he was able to have in New York with the master sculptor John Quincy Adams Ward. Ward himself was well on his way to becoming one of the leading American sculptors of the day, and his Indian hunter, a harbinger of the new naturalism, had just been unveiled to much acclaim in Central Park, the first sculpture to be placed in the park. 
The next step in French's education took place in Boston, where he spent the winter and spring of 1870 and 71 studying with two of the city's renowned artist teachers, the sculptor William Rimmer, from whom French learned about anatomy, and the painter William Morris Hunt, whose art classes were among the most popular in the city, especially with young aspiring women artists. What do you think of my going to Hunt's drawing school? French wrote to his brother in March 1871. I'm with 15 or 20 young ladies, and nary a fellow is in the class. <laughs> I've picked up a good many ideas in the way of charcoal drawing, though per perhaps more from the ladies for, than from Mr. Hunt himself. <laughs> Meanwhile, French refined his knowledge of idealized classical forms by drawing from some of the nearly 100 casts and copies of antique sculpture that were owned by the Boston Athenaeum and available for study in this very room in which we're sitting tonight. French later wrote to a friend about his experiences at the Athenaeum, quote, among those beautiful plaster casts that I studied there with so much pleasure and profit. One of these was the fine cast of the famous Apollo Belvedere, which French dutifully recorded in his sketchbook. And that sketchbook open to that page is in the exhibition. Within a short time, those drawings would provide inspiration for his first major work, the heroic bronze monument to the Minutemen of the American Revolution that was commissioned from him by the city of Concord, Massachusetts in 1873. It proved to be French's first masterwork and a harbinger of great things to come. The Minuteman was dedicated in April 7, uh, 1875, the 100th anniversary of the famous battle that had been fought there. But French wasn't in Concord to witness the ceremonies. He had already left for a nearly two-year stint in Florence, Italy, where he studied with the Boston-born sculptor Thomas Ball while living with the family of Preston Powers, son of the creator of that Greek slave, which we saw earlier. Indeed, the lingering influence of neoclassicism can be seen in one of French's earliest works, his Endymion. It was inspired from a distance by the famous Hellenistic sculpture known as the Barberini Faun, a cast of which French would have seen at the Boston Athenaeum, and more immediately by a contemporary trope on the ancient work, Harriet Hosmer's Sleeping Faun, which French saw in that American sculptor's Roman studio in 1875. But the neoclassicism of the Endymion proved to represent no more than a pause in French's stylistic development. On his return to the United States in 1876, he immediately began to move away from that older taste toward one that was beginning to dominate contemporary sculpture, first in Europe, especially in Paris, and then, thanks to the Parisian study that scores of American artists were pursuing at the time in the United States. As mentioned earlier, this shift included a renewed interest in the medium of bronze, which could be molded in more expressive and lively ways than the previously favored marble, thus expanding figurative options and freeing imagination. French's own interest in the latest trends is suggested in several portraits that he created around the year 1880, uh, one of which of James E. Cabot is right over there on the table. Each of these evokes a physical presence 
and psychological insight, which are hallmarks of the new naturalism. In 1886, French's dedication to the new styles was cemented when he made a second trip to Europe, this time going to Paris, where he could experience not the art of the past, but that of the present. By the time he got home in the spring of the following year, his own education and transformation were complete. He was poised to become one of the most successful sculptors in America. He bought a home and studio in Greenwich Village in New York, which he and his wife, Mary French, who he married that same year, eventually enhanced with the purchase of a summer home in Massachusetts, the future Chesterwood. Job offers began rolling in, and from this point forward, French was never without work. Over the decades, these ranged from uncomplicated busts of notable men, such as those of Emerson and Cabot that we just saw, to pedestrian portraits, as with the marble Louis Cass that French made for the U.S. Capitol's Statuary Hall, or that of Wendell Phillips that he executed for Boston's Public Garden. A commission could call for an equestrian figure, such as George Washington for the city of Paris, a multi-figure portrait, as in the memorial to Gallaudet for Washington, D.C., or a simultaneous use of portraiture and allegory, as French did in the memorial to John Boyle O'Reilly, seen here from both sides on Commonwealth Avenue here in Boston. Finally, and this brings us to our topic this evening, he might choose to eschew portraiture altogether and achieve his aesthetic and iconographic goals through pure allegory, which, as we will see, he often imagined and realized in female form. While great art resists classification, French's uses of the human body for allegorical purpose can be divided according to compositional type, an exercise if that is a bit artificial, but if nothing else can suggest the various ways in which the female form inspired and even liberated him. At their most classical, French's allegorical women are frontally oriented, emotionally serious, and compositionally compact. Examples can be found in French's memorial to the great American uh, architect Richard Morris Hunt that was commissioned shortly after Hunt's death in 1895 by a committee representing New York City's leading cultural institutions. The idea was for a, quote, monumental seat adorned with a sculptured portrait of Mr. Hunt to be erected on the eastern edge of Central Park a site directly across Fifth Avenue from the Lenox Library, one of Hunt's masterpieces, was eventually chosen. Unfortunately, this building's being a masterpiece did not keep it from being torn down in 1913 to make way for what is now the Frick Museum. Evidently, there was immediate consensus among the members of the Hunt Memorial Committee as to which artist should be given the commission for the memorial, and a delegation was soon dispatched to French's New York studio to offer him the job. As his collaborator, French chose the architect Bruce Price, best remembered today for his designs for the planned community at Tuxedo Park, New York. By early 1897, the two men were able to present a proposal in the form of a presentation model to the committee. The design was wholeheartedly approved and the memorial was built accordingly. Given the late Hunt's profession, it's not surprising that the memorial is dominated by its architectural elements, 
But these both embrace and foreground French's sculptures. The required bust of Hunt is at the center of the curving arcade, which terminates in plinths that are adorned with allegorical figures. These not only symbolize their respective subjects as identified by the things they hold, but as a pair reflect the inclusive mission of the organizations that had initiated the memorial and of which Richard Morris Hunt's own understanding of the importance of artistic collaboration. At its dedication in 1898 and at its final completion in 1901, the memorial was universally admired for its overall, quote, nobility and restraint. The allegorical figures seen here in bronze reductions that French had, had cast from his working maquettes, which are in the exhibition, were especially called for, uh, called out the manner in which the sculptor had counterbalanced the stiffness uh, of the figures with a bravura handling of the material. Uh, for example, writing in 1903, the sculptor historian Laredo Taft noted the balance of repose and agitation that French had achieved here. These presiding geniuses are treated with fitting formality, Taft wrote, but within the severe outlines of their classical garments, there is much richness of plastic handling. They are among the most beautiful of Mr. French's creations. The fact that French's Hunt Memorial was commissioned by a committee was pretty typical of most large public art projects of the American Renaissance. But some of his most visible and successful sculptures were actually commissioned by individuals, an interesting number of whom were women. One of these was Harriet Warren Golett, whose husband, Robert Golett, uh, had been a prominent New York fin financier. When he died in 1899, his widow asked the architect Charles McKim to help her devise a suitable memorial to her late husband. Uh, McKim had already worked on a number of commercial buildings for the Golett family, uh, including the Golett building itself, which still stands at 20th Street and Broadway in New York. Golett had been a proud member of Columbia University's class of 1860, and he and his wife were great friends with Seth Lowe, former president of the institution and namesake of its main library, which McKim had designed. Uh, with more than a little chutzpah, Mrs. Golett now decided that she wanted the memorial to her late husband to be erected right in the middle of the grand steps that led up to the library. Uh, realizing that the project would actually require the services of a sculptor more than those of an architect, McKim wisely introduced Mrs. Golett to Daniel Chester French, and the commission was off and running. McKim and French convinced Harriet Golett that a single allegorical figure for the memorial would be much better suited to the proposed site than a portrait statue, and as such would have a better chance of getting approval from the powers that be at Columbia. And of course, the fact that Mrs. G was footing the bill didn't hurt the project's prospects either. And when she decided that the memorial should be made site-specific by modeling an it after the main figure on the university's official seal, uh, the, the project was done. The sculpture that would be known as Alma Mater was born. French made several proposals in the form of small plaster maquettes, uh, one of which was particularly imaginative and visually interesting, and these uh, and one other are in the exhibition. 
In the end, though, Mrs. Golette went with the more formal and monumental, if somewhat uncomfortable-looking, version that we see in place today. With a pedestal of McKim's design, it was unveiled in 1903. Uh, its success can be measured by the fact that, despite an odd lack of attention from New York's critics, a situation about which French complained, it immediately became a universal symbol of its subject. It is also a lasting memorial to the productive relationship that had existed between its patron, Mrs. Golette, and the artists with whom she collaborated. While such relationships proved to be the norm in French's career, the rather stiff artificial pose assumed by the alma mater was not. Instead, and maybe especially, his seated female figures tended to be more Baroque than classical. A good example is his sculpture of America, one of four representing the continents that he created beginning in 1903 for the architect Cass Gilbert's U.S. Customs House in Lower Manhattan. Rather than sitting calmly and benevolently like alma mater, America seems to, have, to be about to leap from her great chair. She is energetic and partially due to her size and the high pedestal on which she sits, aggressive and dominating. She is surrounded by symbolic attributes and subsidiary and of course subservient figures that compositionally invite the viewer to move around the sculpture, inspecting it from all sides. Implying physical action with inanimate stone and prompting it in living observers are typical Baroque devices. Think of the paintings, uh, the sculptures of Bernini or the paintings of Caravaggio. Another is the use of the figure as an agent of human emotion, and in this department we find French especially inspired by the female form in finding ways to transmit emotions such as joy, exuberance, and optimism, even in the face of death. As unlikely as it might sound on the face of it, such inspiration is at the root of the memorial French created between 1913 and 1915 to the late New York investment banker, Spencer Trask. Although the project grew out of tragedy, it is in all aspects an ode to joy. It is also a monument not only to the man whose name it bears, but to the woman who commissioned it, Trask's spouse, the poet and playwright, Katrina Nichols Trask. A native of Brooklyn and a graduate of Princeton University, Spencer Trask was the founder of Trask and Company, which from the 1880s to well into the 20th century was one of the most influential investment firms in New York. As an active supporter of the arts, Trask was also a member of New York's leading cultural organizations, such as the Municipal Arts Society and the National Arts Club, of which he was a founder and president. In 1881, he and Katrina, who he had married in 1874, bought a large property in Saratoga Springs, New York, which they called Yaddo. They would eventually set up a trust that would, after their deaths, establish Yaddo as an artist's retreat, which it remains today. By the 1890s, they were widely known for their philanthropy and were especially admired for their optimism. Together and separately, they almost miraculously maintained that optimism, despite a series of personal tragedies. They lost all four of their children before those children reached adolescence. 
and in 1909, Trask himself was killed, the sole victim of a horrific train wreck. These catastrophes severely damaged Katrina Trask's health, and following her husband's death, she was a semi-invalid for the rest of her life. Despite all of that, Katrina Trask was determined to erect monuments to her dead children, which she did privately at Yaddo, and to her husband, which she decided to do publicly at Saratoga Springs. Already familiar with Daniel French's work, she decided that the latter memorial should be of his design. Accordingly, in February 1913, George Foster Peabody, Spencer Trask's former business park partner and the couple's closest friend, wrote to French to offer him the job, and the sculptor responded enthusiastically. On meeting Mrs. Trask during the first of many visits to Yaddo, French quickly realized that she would be an active patron, fully engaged in the project at every stage. She made it clear, for example, that as a nod to Saratoga Springs history, the memorial should take the form of a fountain and that its main narrative element should be an allegorical winged figure. French put his initial ideas for the project into the form of a small maquette, or model, which he presented to Mrs. Trask in the summer of 1913. He called it the Spirit of the Waters. Its composition, an earthbound, mournful figure that was meant to dribble water from its outstretched, downward-facing palms, suggests that he was taking his inspiration from the various tragedies that had befallen the Trasks. Be that as it may, Katrina Trask would have none of it. Without suggesting any lack in French's talents, she asked him to try again, this time going for something that, in her words, would embody buoyancy rather than despondency and celebrate the persistence of life rather than its end. French complied and by the beginning of the following year, 1914, had a second maquette ready for her. The change in attitude is reflected in a change of title. French called this one the spirit of life. The winged figure's head is now tilted upward, her gaze is directed outward, and her arms are raised high. She brandishes objects that are specific to and symbolic of the memorial's patron and purpose. With one arm, she supports a small basin from which water, a symbol of the renewal of life, would flow. And with the other, she holds a pine bough, Spencer Trask's adopted symbol and a symbol of Yaro itself. The effect is one of benevolence, enthusiasm, and joy. The sculpture was thus enlarged, cast in bronze, and with a setting designed by the architect Henry Bacon, dedicated to the memory of Spencer Trask in the summer of 1915. Over the months that he worked on this memorial and in the time following its completion, French expressed his gratitude to Katrina Trask, not only for having given him the job, but for having played such a vital role in its conception. I have so much to thank you for that I do not know where to begin, he wrote. The privilege of your friendship the boundless hospitality of your house to me and to my friends and family, the great opportunity you have given me as an artist, and most of all for the revelation of your own bright, brave, buoyant spirit, an example and an incitement to anyone who would rebel at the burdens of this world has put upon them. I am grateful for it all. With nothing else, French and his astute patron 
showed with the Trask Memorial that beauty could endure in the face of anything, even death. That very theme, victory over death, was the inspiration for what is arguably French's great masterpiece, the Melvin Memorial, designed for Sleepy Hollow Cemetery in Concord, Massachusetts in 1906 and 8. The memorial's central figure, which French called Morning Victory, is a visualization not only of the potential grace of the human body, but as interior becomes exterior of the ubiquitous mystery and privacy of the human spirit. Inspired by the female form, it is one of French's most innovative and haunting sculptures. Morning Victory has its roots in two earlier commissions, one of which was realized, although in truncated form, and one of which was not. The first of these was a memorial to the American historian Francis Parkman, which a self-appointed committee of interested Bostonians commissioned from Fr French in 1897. Working in collaboration with the architects Charles McKim and then Henry Bacon, French proposed several designs, uh, versions of a design uh, that in both iterations consist of plinths, each decorated with a figure of a Native American, uh, which is a reference to Parkman's historical writings. These figures, one female and one male, were to be carved in negative relief. This gives them a sense of mystery and romance, qualities more or less required by contemporary stereotypes of Native Americans. By the time the memorial was finished in 1906, however, it had been reduced to a single plinth and the female figure had disappeared entirely, leaving the design as we see it in Boston's Fenway today. But the idea of the female figure thus rendered remained with French and he used it again for a project funded by the state of Connecticut to honor soldiers from that state who had been incarcerated in the Confederate prison at Andersonville, Georgia during the Civil War. French got involved in this new project in 1906, just the same year in which he was completing the Parkman Memorial. Apparently, he designed this maquette for the committee overseeing the Connecticut project, and as you can see, its sole feature is a female figure emerging from the block, now meant to represent death and mourning. French was so proud of and committed to the conception that in a rare move, he told the Connecticut committee that, quote, the monument must be this design or nothing. In fact, he continued, it was only because I was so much interested in this design that I was willing to undertake this project. The committee was not sympathetic. They rejected French's proposal and in March 1907, he withdrew from the project. The job eventually went to the Boston sculptor Bela Pratt, who gave the committee what they had wanted all along, a rather predictable, if poignant, figure of a young, sculpt, uh, young soldier. French himself soldiered on, and as luck would have it, the maquette that he had made for Connecticut was spotted in his New York studio and admired by an old friend from Concord, a businessman named James Melvin. Uh, Melvin was middle-aged by this time, quite successful, but had lost all three of his brothers, Asa, John, and Samuel Melvin in the Civil War, uh, which of course by this time uh, was many years in the past. However, he and French, who had known each other almost their whole lives, had been talking about erecting a memorial to the lost brothers uh, since at least 1880. 
Uh, neither of them had had the resources to make that happen at the time, but now, with both of them successful and facing their own mortalities, Melvin reintroduced the topic and the deal was sealed. Thanks to the lifelong admiration and friendship that existed between Melvin and French, the Melvin Memorial came to fruition in an uncommonly efficient and trouble-free manner. After hiring again Henry Bacon, who was French's favorite architect, to design the monument's setting, French got busy developing his little figure into the more fully realized conception that would become Morning Victory. He fleshed out the figure's face and body, made its gender more obviously female, and defined the attributes that would allow its meaning to be understood. As French worked with Bacon, they realized, too, that the architectural setting that they were planning would give the figure's pose an additional layer of meaning. Three bronze slabs, each engraved with the name of a dead brother, were to be embedded in the pavement direct, directly beneath the angelic figure. In this setting, with her tilted head and downcast eyes, the figure would transcend mere sorrow and become part of and specific to the site. Her purpose as guardian of the deceased, represented by the tablets below, is now more obvious, allowing her to assume fully her role as mourning victory. As was noted at the dedication of the monument in 1909, she will forthwith, quote, maintain sleepless vigil over her sacred trust. At the completion of the Melvin Memorial, French wrote that, quote, I am better pleased with it altogether than with anything I ever did, and the public concurred. When French sent the full-size plaster model of Morning Victory to an exhibition at the National Academy of Design in New York, where he had studied so many years before, that exhibition taking place in 1908, it was given the place of honor in an installation that had been designed with it in mind. The New York critics, many of whom usually gave sculpture short shrift, raved about it as splendid, impressive, beautiful. They praised it for its breadth and subtlety. That level of admiration for the sculpture did not diminish over time. Specific mention of the Melvin Memorial remained a reliable feature of writing about French for decades. In a book-length tribute to him written at his death in 1931, for example, his friend, the critic and historian Adeline Adams, gave Morning Victory special attention, identifying it as French's most innovative form. The figure, she wrote, appears as if summoned from the deeps of the stone which it adorns. Unhasting, unresting, it comes forward to deliver its message. French's method of modeling the form gives a rich, deep dark as background for certain significant portions of it, while other, others remain submerged. I know of no other outstanding American work in which the single female figure is thus conceived and executed. With the exception of French's two moving images of Lincoln, which we glimpsed earlier, I think one would be hard-pressed to find any within his canon that have quite the same emotional impact as does the morning victory. Its haunting effect is similar to that of that other great American allegory of grief. Augustus St. Gaudens figure on the grave of Clover Adams in Washington, D.C.'s Rock Creek Cemetery. 
But French made it clear in both the title and the form that he gave his sculpture that his was a memorial not only to the long-departed Melvin brothers, but also to the hope of victory in some form over death. As such, it is at once more transparent and more optimistic a, a, a conception than St. Gaudens. In the context of this lecture, we might also see it as the ultimate representative of an important, if less studied, aspect of French's career and style. Just as morning victory seems to free itself from its background, literally emerging, figuratively victorious, so the contemplation of the female form freed the imagination of Daniel Chester French to create so many moving and enduring works. Thank you. <laughs>